I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, rare friends, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. We have a new episode of Once Upon a Gene TV coming out soon, and it's extra special. If you don't already have a Roku or Amazon Fire, you need to get one of those babies. It's where you can download the Disorder Channel for free. It features over 100 films about rare disease and other types of disabilities. Thanks to Bo Bigelow and Daniel DeFabio for creating it. I'm so in love with today's guest. She has three kiddos, one of whom is 15 years old, named Dahlia, who has Murph syndrome. It's an extremely rare form of mitochondrial disease. It's a degenerative disease that has taken away her ability to talk, walk, eat, and move, all of which she was able to do when she was younger. She's been a rare mama for over 10 years now, and she's gained a lot of perspective. I can't wait for you to meet her. Please enjoy my conversation with Jessica Fine. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the show. Hi. So happy to be here. Yes. We have lots of friends in common, so I'm kind of surprised that it's taking us this long to finally meet up, but I'm happy we've made it happen. Me too. <laughs> so you have quite a story, Jessica, and you're coming from the angle of being an adopted parent. You adopted three kids. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so I adopted three children, Jojo, Dahlia, and Theo, and they all came from Guatemala. They were all born in Guatemala, and we adopted Jojo at 15 months, Dahlia at six months, and Theo at 10 months. Wow, that's amazing. Are they all biological siblings? They are not biological siblings. So in this particular case, as the story unfolded, that was actually a real blessing for us. Yeah. Tell me about that. It's interesting. Dahlia's birth mother is the only one of the three we met. And we actually had the opportunity to meet her twice. The first time we met her was when we went to adopt Dahlia. And she was a young, vivacious, lovely, lovely woman. And in fact, we met Dahlia's birth grandmother, too. They came together to meet us. A couple of years later, when we went back to Guatemala to pick up Theo, they asked through the attorney if they could come see us again. They wanted to hear about Dahlia. And this was two years later. And when they came in, the birth mother looked like a different person. She was emaciated. She was having trouble walking. And they couldn't tell us what was wrong with her. They didn't know. And, you know, years later, when Dahlia was diagnosed and we learned that Dahlia's condition, which is a mitochondrial disease, Murph syndrome, is maternally inherited, we understood what had made her birth mother so sick. And 
because of course it's a genetic disease that runs in families, the fact that our other two children were not biologically related was a blessing for us because I know so many families where they've had more than one child be diagnosed with these horrendous diseases. And and that's a whole different level of heartbreaking. Wow. A definite blessing in disguise. And how interesting that that's the only family that you got to meet. Right. So tell me about the diagnostic journey a little bit with Dahlia. You know, at first Dahlia was developing normally, but as she got to be about two years old and a little bit, a little bit beyond that, her speech was delayed and her toddling was kind of wobbly. And so I did, you know, what every, what everybody does. I called the experts. I talked to the doctor. I called early intervention and everybody said, she's fine. You just don't know what her prenatal situation was or, you know, what those first six months were like. So just give it a little bit more time and she'll surely catch up. So we did that. And then, you know, a few months would go by and I'd call an early intervention again and call the doctors again. And, you know, this continued for a while. But finally, one of the doctors agreed that we should do a hearing test. And that was the first thing because the hearing test showed mild to moderate hearing loss and indicated that Dahlia would need to wear hearing aids, which at the time seemed like such a big deal. You know, that was the first (laughs) thing. (laughs) And I look back on it now and it's just so, it's such a, you know, picture of kind of where I was and how sheltered I had been that I was like, hearing aids? But anyway, because Dahlia was adopted, we didn't know what the cause of the hearing loss was, if there was a genetic cause or if she had had a virus as a baby, if she was born that way. So right away, they suggested genetic testing. And again, this was a little bit of a blessing because it was a pretty easy, or I should say, wasn't easy. It was a fast diagnosis. And so they did the blood work. And because Dahlia's disease is so rampant in her blood, they were able to identify it right off the bat. And they called us into the office. And of course, we, you know, had no idea. Again, another thing that I think about in retrospect, they did, they said, oh, no, we just need you. We don't need Dahlia to come to the appointment. So we should have probably known we were getting some big news, but we we had no idea. And they told us something we just couldn't comprehend. And they had so little information. And we had no idea the gravity of what it was we were we were hearing at that time. Because aside from the fact that she had some speech delays and some motor issues, she was healthy. And so they said she has mitochondrial disease. And, and you know, we were like, well, what, what's mitochondria? And why does that matter? You know, and, and they said she's got myoclonic epilepsy, ragged red fibers. And we said, well, she can't possibly have epilepsy because, you know, she's not having seizures. We are not in any way, shape or form in the medical field. We didn't know anything about what they were saying to us. And, and it really took us years before we fully understood the gravity, because it wasn't until she got very sick that we understood what we had heard that day in that office. Oof. Uh, So when you go home after getting this news and they don't really know much about it and she wasn't really sick yet, 
what were you doing to take care of her? Were you freaking out at this point or were you just like, eh, okay, well, she has something, but she's fine. I, you know, I will never forget. I came home and I did what, you know, what we do. I Googled and I read the description and they said, Murph syndrome can vary widely among people who are afflicted with it. And here's the list of possibilities of things that could happen. And I was like, okay, so we have a menu here. Like she's got to have the hearing loss and she'll probably have the short stature, but she definitely won't have dementia or blindness. Like I thought those, no, there's no way she, she'll have those. You know, I was like, okay, there, there's a range here and this, this might be okay. And so I remember I, I emailed that description to, you know, my, my family and my close friends. And I was going on a business trip the next day and it wasn't even like, okay, I'm going to cancel the business trip. I thought I'll, I'll go on that trip and I'll cut it short. I'll come home early, but it was still life was going to go on as it had before because there she was and she was exactly the same. And she had this big, you know, scary, scary, scary label and diagnosis, but, but she was still the same energetic, vivacious ball of sweetness she'd always been. And so, <laughs> you know, we just, we didn't realize. And they told us, they told us at that time, kids with Mito can turn on a dime. But who knows what that means, you know? And and we just had no idea that that's what would happen. So, you know, Dahlia's, yes, her symptoms started to get a little bit more pronounced. And she went from toddling and, and walking, albeit wobbly, she walked, she went from there to the AFOs and from the AFOs to the walker and then to a wheelchair when she was, you know, when we were in the mall or that kind of thing, if it was going to be a long distance. And we kept having to turn up those hearing aids. The hearing loss became more severe and the speech, little things continued to get worse, but it wasn't until she got a cold that turned into pneumonia that things changed really radically for her and for us. I think it's interesting that immediately after getting some of the news, you, I mean, I'm sure you didn't get all of the news because they didn't really necessarily understand what was really happening at that point. But I think it's interesting that you were kind of maintaining your expectations and your hope of what you had thought about the way your life was going to turn out with being a mom to these three beautiful kids over not necessarily denial, but maybe a little bit. A little bit of denial, a little bit of like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And then a whole lot of, well, we'll fix this. You know, I thought, we'll find a study. We'll find medication. They'll come up with a cure. I didn't get that. Like there weren't a huge number of people looking for a cure. You know, there weren't even people who under who knew what this was. Even here in Boston, which is one of the medical meccas of the world, we met more doctors who hadn't heard of Murph syndrome than doctors who had. That was another really weird thing, of course, you know, as we all go through when, when we go from not knowing what mitochondria are, right, to being the expert in our child's diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It's really crazy. So after she got this respiratory virus and went downhill, what about caring for her changed? What about her health changed? Everything, everything changed. So we were actually on a vacation when it happened. We were in Florida. And, you know, one day there she was in the pool eating chicken nuggets and, you know, enjoying a, a family trip. And the next day she was in ICU. And we were flown back on a medical jet and went straight to Mass General Hospital. And we stayed there for three months. 
And she just lost so much functionality during that time. She became so weak and her body couldn't fight back. So she was intubated. And every time they'd extubate, she'd go into respiratory failure and they would have to intubate again. We went through this cycle for for months and they brought up the idea of a trach and we were really resistant to it until we understood that the only way we were getting out of the hospital was with a trach. So by the time we got out of the hospital, she had lost all ability to swallow. So she never ate again. She had a G-tube. We thought when we got the G-tube, it was just going to kind of be a, a safety net, you know, in case she, you know, we needed to get in medication into her or something like that. But it ended up becoming her permanent feeding solution. And she couldn't walk at all anymore. And most pronounced was the fact that she she couldn't talk anymore once she had the trach. And she was nine at the time. So here she was, you know, learning to read and she was in a conventional school. Um, but when we left the hospital, she was vent dependent and uh, unable to speak or walk or eat. Oof. That's a fast impact. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself from that quick turnaround? Did you trust your instincts more? Did you realize you were calm under pressure? Were you freaking out? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little bit of all of the above. I mean, I think that what happened was during those three months, at least, our world got so much smaller. So my husband and I both worked up until that point, and we still do now. But but then, you know, we took leaves of absence from work and we alternated every night for three months, which one of us was home with the boys and which one of us was in the um, in the hospital with Dahlia. And just, you know, our whole world was room 646 at Mass General Hospital. Like that's what it was for those three months. And we came home and we ended up having a hospital room in our house uh, that mounted medical equipment. And then And then the other big, huge change was that when we left the hospital, Dahlia was an eyes-on patient, which meant that somebody needed to have eyes on her 24-7, whether that was my husband, me, or a trained nurse. But that was seven years ago, and, and that's still the case today, obviously. So, you know, like if I'm home alone with her, I can't go to the bathroom, or, you know, somebody's with her all 24-7 all through the night. And it has to be somebody who's trained in her care. It can't be, you know, a friend or neighbor or something like that. Oh, my gosh. That's got to be just like constant stress, living in stress. It is constant living in stress. And, you know, sometimes I think I think this is probably the case for so many of us, right? We're in it, so we don't pause to think about it. The other day I was talking to a friend of mine. I said, I'm just so tired. I think there might, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I have, some, I don't know, I'm so tired. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she was like, of course you're tired. You are living in chronic stress. And sometimes I think we need people to point that out to us because when we're in it, like who has time to sit back and be like, I'm, I'm living in chronic stress. Like, no, you just are going about and doing the next thing that needs to be done. And so I think that's interesting to, you know, kind of take a step back every now and then and be like, yeah, oh yeah, I guess I know why I'm tired. You know? Yeah, this isn't normal. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote something really beautiful a little while ago. You said, I wanted to wrap myself in the fear and live right inside of it. If the danger danced too close, maybe the fear would repel it. We're living on the precipice. So living in fear made sense. Yeah. You know, you don't want to let down your guard. That's the thing. I felt like, okay, I was knocked right over once. 
that time we were in Florida, you know, and now I just like, I need to be in protective mode all the time is how I felt at that point. And it was just like being on guard and being constantly in search of how I was going to fix this situation. Because for a long time, I still maintained that we could fix it. And my husband was much more about like being in the moment and, and trying to really create a childhood for our daughter and for our other kids. And I was trying to find that drug trial and and pursuing any little thing I could think of and the therapies and the, you know, trying to fix it because that's, that's kind of like what we do, right? I mean, we are told as long as my kid is healthy, I don't care if it's a boy or girl or, you know, your main job as a parent is to keep your child safe. And so you feel like when when those things aren't happening, like you're, you're not really doing your job. And it took me a while to, to shift into like, this is not solvable. We are not like single-handedly coming up for the cure for this. So what are we going to do? How are we going to be here? And, you know, like I said, my husband kind of came naturally to him, but create the very, very best today for the kids that we can. Was there something specific that kind of helped you switch your mindset in that? Or did you just realize that, I mean, you were so extremely stressed out, your hair was falling out (laughs) and, you know, it was just go, go, go. And you weren't necessarily there alongside living in the moment like your husband. I think it was a few things. So when Dolly was first diagnosed, I did find a study that I was able to get her into and they had tested Dahlia's cells with the medication and they found that it actually did have a positive impact. And so this was an experimental trial that I worked really, really hard to to find and get her into. And I was kind of kidding myself all along, even when her uh, health status changed so dramatically that she would still be able to get this, get into this trial and that that was going to change everything. And it would end up being like this miracle story. And we were all set to go. It was going to be in DC and we had all the travel arrangements. And at the last minute, they said, Dahlia is just too sick to participate. And I think at that point, it was a bit of a shift for me. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, one phone call and then I was in this new mindset, but I think I really had to say, okay, that's not going to happen. So what are we going to do in the now? And I think that was a big turning point for me. I think I... I learned a lot from watching how great my husband was at being in the moment. I mean, right, we all play our own roles and my role is kind of getting it done and organizing and, you know, all that kind of thing. And he's really present. And I think I've gotten better at that. I still have a long way to go, but I I definitely, you know, watched and saw the laughter could come. And you know what? She couldn't, (laughs) she couldn't speak, but boy, could she her silent laugh was pretty powerful and the smiles and and that's just what I wanted, you know, and and I had to focus more on on the now because the situation just continued to progress. And in fact, in the last two years, it's progressed really dramatically. So I would say back when she was nine was that first huge shift. And then, and then about two years ago was, was the second shift where she lost all of her ability to move. So that was maybe the hardest because even when she got the trach, she could still communicate. She could point, she could mouth, she could shake her head yes or no. But when she lost her ability to move, she lost her ability to do those things. She lost her ability to even blink. I mean, she can't move anything. That's been really hard. And that's been a huge leap of faith to try to think about how do we make the now matter when, when we don't know really what's, what's happening. 
Oh, that makes my heart ache. Yeah, me too. Man, those moments that happen that still knock the wind out of you, what are the coping skills that you've kind of nailed down and put in place when things get overwhelming like that? It's an excellent question. And I think that there are a few things, right? So we you know, pre-COVID, we had some really practical things that we had in place in terms of having time for ourselves. And I and I mean, like, I would have time for myself and my husband would have time for himself. And, and it was really structured, right? So it was like Thursday night was my night and Tuesday night was his night. And then, you know, we did that on the weekends. And so knowing that there was this time that I had during the week, even if it was only a few hours where I could go see a friend or go sit and write somewhere or whatever it was, was really important because I think that it is just far too easy to lose any, any sense of self and any sense of time because so much of your time is just swallowed up, not only by the practical considerations, but by the sadness or the fear or any of those things. So that we did that and we also had a date night. We were really lucky. We were able to get a nurse who would cover for us on Saturday evenings. And so those things practically made a big difference. You know, the other thing was connecting with people was a big one, knowing that in fact, there were other people, maybe not even if they weren't in this specific situation, other people who, who got it. I think was so important because no matter how helpful friends or family try to be, like nobody knows what to say. Nobody really knows what to do. So when you can find those other people who are living with something that's a little bit relatable, I think it just makes such a huge difference. Mm, amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> amen to that. You're a conduit for that. And what you're doing here is part of that. So so thank you. And, and it really does make a difference for people. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And it's from experience. And I absolutely agree with you. So I know a lot of us have other kids. You have two other kids. And I'm constantly like, man, how am I going to make sure I don't screw this up more than I'm normally probably going to? How do I make sure that our lives are fulfilled and my other kid feels included and feels separate at the same time? Yes, exactly. So so Dye is our middle kid. And so we had, I mean, one thing that was particularly excruciating was when our little guy started to, you know, get skills that far outpaced his older sister, right? You know, so like when he was a baby, she would feed him, you know, and then the tables turned and he started feeding her and, you know, things like that. But he just kind of always cuddled into her and snuggled into her and, and took it that way. Whereas our older became much more brooding and, and was much more quiet about it all. And so... One of the things that we did wrong was we put on a really strong face and we didn't want to scare them, I think. And so we just put on that, you know, we got this and, and Dahlia knows what's going on. And, you know, she could, you know, she can't do the things that you can do, but, you know, all the things that you say. Right. But we put on this. We got this demeanor with them. And we thought we were helping them, right? They're going to see that we're strong and that it's okay. And then one, one night, and this was really a, like things changed in the course of a night moment, our oldest kid broke down and it was really, really painful. And he just lost it. And he said, I don't understand why you guys aren't sad. I'm so sad and I'm so scared there must be something wrong with me because you guys aren't. 
And I thought, oh my God, oh my God, what have we done, right? <laughs> and that was such a turning point because I realized, you know, here we are thinking we're doing the right thing by, by them. And, and we started to talk to them more honestly in ways they could each at their different ages understand. But I think it was just such a key learning in terms of it's okay to be vulnerable. Not only it's okay to be vulnerable in front of the other ones, but it was important and that we were doing them a disservice, you know? So that was a big one. I, I would say in terms of the other question, how do we give them their own time? We are fortunate in that we are a family with two parents. And so we did start to divvy up. So I would take them on vacation or my husband would take them on vacation. And at first they didn't want to go, you know, it's not fair to I can't go, but they got over it pretty quickly when they saw the pictures of where we were going. <laughs> and so we started to really make sure that we each did spend some independent time with our kids and, and, you know, getting them involved in the things that they were passionate about, whatever that, you know, whether that was, you know, Taekwondo or clarinet, whatever the things were, and really spending that time to help them foster themselves so that they were people in their own right and not just Dahlia's siblings. The permission to feel is something that I think is definitely being more talked about. But, you know, it's the age old, like strong front, you know, like put on your shield and get things done. And you're right, it is a disservice. And it's not just for them, but probably for the both of you as parents, right? Like, did you do that with each other as a couple? Or is that how you kind of moved through life? Or did you really let yourself kind of sit in that grief more so? Or were you also being strong? Such a good question. You know, I think what happened was, and, and still to a certain extent happens, is we're really cautious of sharing, of when we share our sadness, our fears, our grief with each other. Because if one of us is in a good headspace at, you know, seven o'clock on a Tuesday evening, <laughs> and the other one comes in as, you know, not, we don't want to bring that other one down to where we are. And so we have to be cautious. And now we'll ask each other, like, is this an okay time? Can we go there? Because otherwise, you know, you can just bring somebody just tumbling over with you, and that's not good for anybody. So we try to be a little bit cautious about when we get to those places together. And that's really hard. We're, we're both going through it and we're the only per other person <laughs> that can really understand, right, what, what each other is going through and we're the closest people to each other. And yet we also want to protect the other one. So it's tough. It's definitely a, a balancing act. I love the idea of asking if the time is okay yeah. to to express how you're feeling. When I was 27, my sister, who was 30, died. And my father used to call me at work. And he, he was just, I mean, we, we were torn apart. It was a sudden death. It's a, a subject for a, another podcast altogether. But but he would call me at work and he would want to talk about it. And I'd be like, like, dad, I'm at work. You know, I was trying to be in the game, you know, getting, my, getting my job done. And finally I had to say to him, unless you're in crisis and you really need to talk about it right then, can you ask me first or can you wait until maybe I'm not at work? And it was just, it's something that really did stick with me that when the, when the person who wants to share or needs to share is at that point, it doesn't necessarily mean the other person is at the point of being able to receive it. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, when my husband is 
stressed out about something with health, Ford's health or future, that is like something that really activates me and it gets me stressed because like he's my calm cucumber. Yes. He's the one that's like your husband who's just like living in the moment and loving his family to the depths. And if he looks like he's off kilter, I'm like, we're going to fall. If you're not stable, we're going to fall. And I know how unfair that is and how ridiculous that is, but like, he's my anchor. Absolutely. I I literally said to my husband a few nights ago, we were talking about something and, you know, he was getting kind of worked up. And I said, wait, can you just do the thing you do? And he's like, what? (laughs) He goes, what's the thing I do? And so I kind of gave him the script. You know, when you say, listen, we've got this. It's good. You know, and I said, I I gave him the whole script. and He was like, well, I think you just said it. I was like, yeah, but it doesn't have the same effect when I said it. I need you to say it. But you're right. It's not fair to them if we're expecting them to be all, you know, okay all the time. I know. It's like when someone else cooks you dinner, it just tastes better. Oh, totally. (laughs) I want to circle back to your kids really quick. Uh, I just have one more question about the matter that you said you take them on vacations separately and do the things. Was it easy to kind of get over that sort of sadness about leaving Dahlia and not being able to go as a unit? Or was it actually kind of freeing to just be able to do something normal? Oh, both. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to go away with my husband. So that's crazy. And, and you know, I just had a friend the other day say, oh, we just went away for a really short trip for four nights. And I thought the most my husband or I will ever be away from the house with the other two is four nights. So, you know, you want you fantasize. I mean, I fantasize all the time about where we would go and what we would do and what life would be. But it was also freeing. Oh, my goodness. It was freeing. Right. Because you could just go and be and enjoy. Now, of course, we haven't we haven't done anything in a couple of years because of COVID, but there was definitely letting the shoulders down when when we would go away. You hear that, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. If going away on a vacation isn't in the cards, going out to dinner or just doing something, doing those things, I think, you know, because again, it's their childhood too. And boy, they have to grow up faster in so many ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the siblings are a completely other topic of just resilience and strength Mm -hmm. and, you know, interrupted childhood and becoming an adult too fast. Absolutely, yeah. Also turning them into the most magical people that walk the land. That is true. That is definitely (laughs) true. (laughs) When you forecasted your family future in your head, when you had all these beautiful babies come into your life and that changed overnight... Did you feel like that looming thing was going to determine your happiness? And what truths did you actually realize from all of this? I reimagined my dreams once a long time ago when we weren't able to have our uh, biological children. And I was able to embrace what the new dream would be and to really understand that this was going to be in many ways more interesting and just more of an adventure than I than I would have ever expected you know so we so we got our babies and we thought that was that right we got our babies after a long long time in a way we had never thought of before when we were you know dreaming about what our life would be like when we got married and, and that kind of thing I think that it still unfolds even after all this time, the reimagining, it continues to happen because with a degenerative disease, the situation continues to change. And I think that there's a sadness that for a really long time, I didn't give myself permission to feel because 
I felt like that was a betraying my daughter, that she's here and she's fighting and she's trying to be happy despite this atrocious, atrocious disease. And so I'm going to be there right with her and I'm going to not let myself feel the dark side. And then more recently, I, I became familiar with this idea of ambiguous grief and the idea that there's a whole other kind of grieving that happens when somebody's still alive, when you're grieving parts of the person who are, you know, that, that are no longer there. And it was very freeing for me to understand that that's okay. Like we're not grieving the person. The person is still alive. She's still with us, but, but we're grieving what our life was going to be, what her life was going to be, but what our lives were going to be because because our lives are nothing like we would have ever imagined. And and yes, there have been things that have come out of it and maybe we're more resilient and we know people we wouldn't have known and all that kind of stuff, but nobody can think that this happened for a reason or it was that there's blessings that came from it, all that kind of stuff. But in my opinion, this is something that, you know, it's it's the stuff of nightmares. I've allowed myself more recently really to be okay with with accepting that piece of it and not feeling like, oh, well, there'll be time later. Like I can, later I'll be sad. Later, you know, it's okay. It's okay to, to feel it now too. Mm, yes. I mean, the feelings that you keep inside only get stronger. So whatever it is, whether it's grief or anger or whatever, the longer you compound it, the stronger the combustion is going to be. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I would 100% just put my hands in the air of the idea that recognizing and naming whatever grief you're feeling is so incredibly freeing. Yes. It was like once there was a name for it and I knew it was a thing. I mean, it's the same thing with anticipatory grief, right? I, I knew about regular grief, right? Because as I mentioned, like I lost my sister and, and in the subsequent years, I lost my other sister too. And I lost my parents. And well, I had been through an enormous amount of conventional, if there is such a thing, grief in that, you know, the kind of grief we all understand objectively, the kind of grief that, you know, there are, there are greeting cards about, right? But But these other kinds that are so nuanced and so just they're so complex, right? The anticipatory grief and ambiguous grief, but knowing there's a name for it, the real does give you a different kind of permission to feel it. Yes. How do you think that this experience of being Dahlia's mom has helped you find your purpose in a way or has it? I feel so committed to sharing her story, to sharing our story. I feel like it's I need to do that. And it's given me for sure all kinds of perspective, right? I mean, you have so much of a different perspective for going through this, but I, I feel like, yeah, part of my purpose is, is talking about it, is raising awareness, is sharing the understanding, sharing the few things I've learned. And believe me, <laughs> I'm sure that, you know, most of the, the most of the things in this world, I haven't the slightest and, and I have so much more to learn. But those few things that I have learned where they might be able to help somebody who's a little bit earlier along in the process. But but I also feel like, you know, Dahlia is just such an amazing, amazing, amazing person. And I want people to know about her, know her story and know our story. I think we all understand that for sure. Where are the parts of your life that you've found joy in all of this 
that you least expected? Your questions are so great. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm just listening to you and I'm I'm thinking about the weaves that this has taken and like hearing you speak as her mom. It's just, it's really beautiful. And I love thinking about all the layers that you have to go through and the hills you have to climb and then get knocked down. I mean, it's, but I hear it in your voice, right? Like I hear how happy you are and how much you love your family. I, I'm so glad that you hear that because I feel like that is so core to my approach and to who I am and to creating those moments of joy. And, you know, I, I think about, there's just this image I have in my head and probably because we've got this photograph up of, of one night when the nurse canceled. And I was saying earlier, we used to have a date night on Saturday nights and we were like, oh man, we were so looking forward to this. And and our other kiddos said, you know what? We're going to make you a date. And they, they set up a, a table in Dahlia's room, right at the foot of her, you know, right at the foot of the hospital bed. And they put a tablecloth and candles and they poured us wine and they cooked us dinner. And we had this date <laughs> in her room, you know, and it was just, it was, it was beautiful. And it was like so much more meaningful than a date at, you know, whatever our, the restaurant we go to every Saturday night. It was also, by the way, a lot cheaper too, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, it was like finding these ways in these moments, there was, you know, we'd run around the house and, or, you know, I'd be pushing Dahlia's wheelchair and, and we'd be playing hide and go seek or whatever the things were that we that we did, particularly when they were a bit younger. I mean, now, just to be clear, they're teenagers and, you know, the others don't really want, <laughs> want to be hanging out with us, right? They're like all about their friends. But when they were littler and when we were going through this and it was, it was, yeah, it's different, but we are going to, we're going to find the fun. For sure, we're going to find the fun and we are going to create the joy because this is their childhood, you know? And I, I said that before, but it's true. And so, and because you know what, it all becomes more meaningful, right? Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. I hope you tip those two. They're going to the good place. <laughs> those kiddos. Oh my gosh. <sighs> Finding the joy in these moments and then just really being able to like step back and see it and just be completely wowed by how amazing the small thing is and how much you get from it. And that's probably the thing, right? We probably wouldn't otherwise. We probably wouldn't. And so maybe that's what we take away from all this is that it's those small things. I mean, they sent us, a, a we, we get boxes and boxes and boxes every month of medical supplies, as I'm sure many, many of listeners do. And, and there's these little, you know, the saline bullets, those little pink saline bullets. And they sent us like an extra box or something of it. And, and I just remember we just had the best time, all of us like having a huge water fight with them, you know, like <laughs> getting each other. And Dolly just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And she was cracking up and like, you know, and, and just those things that are so ridiculous, but it's like, all right, you know what? It's all kind of ridiculous. So what what are we going to do here to, to make, make something of it? Oh my gosh. That just takes your breath away. I hope that's on film. Like I need to see that squirting <laughs> like saline fight. I yeah. love that. Wow, Jessica. Well, I could talk to you for a really long time, but I know that you're a busy, busy mom. Is there anything that you wanted to leave with the audience or anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to share? God, I think your questions have been so right on and they've hit on the themes that are so important to me. I mean, I think for me, it's been about finding that balance, about being able to be really, really sad, but to know that at the same time, it's okay to be happy. The joy doesn't need to be ambiguous, even though the grief is, you know, and you can have those, but, and, and not only can you, but you kind of should. So it's about both sides, both sides of that. The joy doesn't have to be ambiguous, even if the grief is. Wow. That's profound. Thanks, Jessica. Mm -hmm. 
appreciate you being my guest today. And I look forward to getting to know you a little better afterwards. Thank you so much. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. (laughs) Ha ha ha!